You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. You know, it's um, it's time to take a dive into the more complex side of running a business or owning a business. If your business gets big enough, you're going to want to think about having a board, and there's all kinds of compliance possibilities that come with that. Even if you're privately held, there are angles and aspects you may want to think about. And if you're not yet there building a board, uh, my guest today is going to help share some ideas and thoughts. His name is Tom Fox. Tom, welcome to the show. Uh, Doug, thanks. Real pleasure and honor to be here with you today. Yeah, you know, Tom, as is a little bit of a tradition, uh, tell everybody a little bit of your backstory, kind of where, what your journey has involved and how is it you've got into what you're doing now? So I'm a lawyer by professional training. Uh, in September, I will uh, attend my 40th law school reunion. So I've been doing it a while. Uh, I'm also, uh, within that, I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I did that for 25 years. Wow. <laughs> then I went to the in-house world and uh, did uh, contracts, got to live abroad and do contracts on every continent, save Antarctica, but I will remedy that at some point. And um, then I uh, moved into the area of anti-bribery and anti-corruption compliance, and I've been in that field for the last 15 years. Well, uh, I, I know that's an area that uh, has, has gotten a lot of attention in, in the last number of years. And I know I myself get involved from time to time in some large global contract platform activities. And they always ask each one of us to go through an anti-bribery, anti-money laundering, you know, um, the risks and challenges of sometimes dealing abroad. There are undercurrents that suggest business practices that you may not normally agree to or, or practice. And uh, knowing what's fair and what's foul is is a really uh, important thing. But um, you, you are running your own show, your own podcast, I believe. And tell us a little more about your target audience there. Sure. So I actually have two podcast networks. So I'm trying to make a business out of this. Uh, the first one is in the area that I just mentioned, anti-corruption compliance. It's expanded out to uh, more general legal and regulatory compliance. That's called the Compliance Podcast Network. And then I uh, live in the hill country of West Texas, just outside of Kerrville. And so I started the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network, where I'm trying to bring a podcast network to a rural area and see if that uh, can be a viable business model or a podcast network by delivering uh, basically social media marketing content for local businesses, as well as news and other podcasts of interest. Fascinating, fascinating. And I, I am, uh, I'm a fan of the latter, as uh, most of my listeners know, I, I too am a Texas boy and the Texas Hill Country is a great destination and specifically the area that Tom is talking about, the um, 
Kerrville area and Fredericksburg and places such as that in really the heart of Texas geographically. It um, It is quite an area. There's been a lot of growth and a lot of new movement and activity. And we have our own wine country of sorts there. And uh, I know that's an attraction that many follow. And there's some good beverages being brewed out of there. <laughs> that there are. Yeah, neat, neat, neat. Well, let's, um, well, I tell you what, let's camp out a minute on uh, j- just your own journey of building a business and building those podcasts. Do you, would you mind sharing some of the trials and travails that you've experienced and, and figured out how to overcome? Sure. So I started podcasting as an outgrowth of blogging. I started podcasting in 2012. Uh, I was uh, at that point practicing law in the area of anti-corruption compliance, and I had started a blog in 2010, largely as a marketing outreach, but it pretty quickly grew, won a few awards, and I discovered that it greatly increased my um, thought leadership profile and specific subject matter expertise because I had to research something to, to do a blog. Well, uh, then I started a podcast, and it turned out the podcast was equally powerful uh, for me in learning and as a marketing tool. In 2017, I got the bright idea that I would start a podcast network, once again, focusing on anti-corruption compliance. There were four big players in the space back then. So I went to every one of them and said, hey, let's create this, uh, basically a consortium, and we will be the only uh podcast network delivering information for the compliance professional in the podcast format. And um, we can be a great resource and I can get zero interest. So um, I just decided to do it myself. I plugged away for um, a couple of years and in 2019, I decided to fully commit to it. Uh, So I took the year off from practicing law, bought all the cool toys, built this huge infrastructure and at the end of the year, I'd made about $10,000. I thought, well, that was an interesting experiment. I have to go back to practicing law and make some money. And uh, that lasted until March of 2020 when they shut the country down uh, because of COVID. And uh, about uh, two months later, I got a call literally from every product provider in the compliance space with the same question, which was, how long to get access to your network? <laughs> almost all marketing and compliance was done in person, either conferences, trade shows, breakfast roundtables, speeches, et cetera. And of course, no one could do that back then. And and by that time, I had 30,000 daily followers on social media. I had the only podcast network. And uh, my answer to all of them was 24 hours. But that was a direct result of having done all the work the year before. One of my favorite phrases is when Preparation meets opportunity, luck occurs, and I got very, very lucky. Uh, right. But if I hadn't done the work in 2019, I wouldn't have gotten lucky. So uh, I, my little world blew up. Um, I went to over 2 million hits and downloads on the network in 2020. And since that time, I've been trying to consolidate that growth and see if I can you know, make a permanent viable business model out of the compliance B2B podcast network. Fabulous. Well, congratulations on that. And there's a couple of, uh, I think, key learning points that that you covered there. 
and and I'll share this in in mind. I'll put on my coaching hat for those that are listening and and trying to start businesses. Sometimes your idea feels like a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. As, as Tom described, he thought it was a great idea, went out to the people that should have been players, and they all turned him down. But he felt committed to it, went ahead and went independently to build and move the model forward. And then that opportunity did strike with the whole COVID lockdown. And there he was, fully prepared, fully ready. And I presume in part of that preparation, Tom, you you had a couple of false starts. You probably had a few glitches in your system, your network, everything from the connectivity to to editing and production and all those things. But you had overcome them by that point. Right. And uh, I remember in the fall of the year before in 2019, I went to there's two major podcast conferences in the United States. And I went to the fall one. And uh, I had these fabulous numbers, and I was convinced I'd get lots of sponsorships and advertisers, and I could get no one interested and because all they heard was legal and regulatory compliance. Who's interested in that? And I was so discouraged. And I remember I, I even left early. I was so discouraged. But on my way out, I said goodbye to a friend of mine, and uh, he just put his arm around me and said, you just keep doing what you're doing. It's going to pay off. And he was right. And, uh, you know, six months later, it, it, my little world blew up. Wow. <laughs> well, that's great. And again, congratulations on that. Well, let's talk a little bit about and the, the arena. And as you said, there are some that are going to hear the words compliance and, and regulatory oversight, and they're going to, you know, kind of gag and probably hit the delete button here. But I'm okay with that. I, I think for those that w want to hear it and need to hear it, they'll hang with us. I have a particular bias in that space, being an old, lifelong, and I love your phrase, you're, you said you're a recovering trial lawyer, I'm a recovering banker. So um, I've spent too many years around the conference table where there was a regulatory and compliance matter at hand, that some challenge that had been put forth, or more importantly, some radical change that had been announced that nobody could understand or uh, nobody knew about. and. For me, my high water mark was the infamous uh, Dodd Frank Act of 2011, 10 or 11, I guess. 2010. 2010, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, that sent shockwaves through the part of the industry that I was associated with at the time. And uh, I can remember going to many different workshops and conferences of folks speaking and trying to make sense of uh, a very confusing regulation that was put out. And, you know, eventually the dust settled and everybody found their new normal and it was all good. But um, talk talk to us a little bit about, I guess, the, the life cycle of those things. Sure. So um, modern compliance actually started back in the mid-90s when they passed the U.S. Uh, sentencing guidelines federal sentencing guidelines for corporations. And in those guidelines, they would give credit, which would reduce your sentence if you had a corporate compliance program in place. Um, so that sort of uh, hummed along. And uh, the major change was a little bit before Dodd-Frank, and that, of course, came out of WorldCom and Enron, and that was Sarbanes-Oxley. Sarbanes-Oxley, or SOX, applied to public corporations. 
Dodd Frank, as you correctly noted uh, or or noted, uh, largely applied to the financial industries, financial industry going forward. All of this is overlaid by the United States was the first country to pass an anti-corruption law, and that was the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act back in 1977. That outlawed uh, U.S. companies from engaging in bribery and corruption outside the United States. That law was in place. Sarbanes-Oxley required corporations to certify financial results and financial filings, and that's SOX 404. And then um, Dodd-Frank came in and strengthened up the uh, 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 AML and other reporting requirements for banks, and that really led to sort of an explosion of growth and compliance uh, programs in the 2010s. And we, we all sort of have learned from each other, meaning public companies have learned from banks because banks had to focus on anti-money laundering and got very, very good at that. Uh, U.S. public corporations didn't focus on that really until recently. They focused on anti-corruption compliance. And now, uh, starting with the Trump administration and into the Biden administration after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, export control and trade sanctions are the biggest uh, sort of compliance areas. So we've had this convergence of various areas of compliance, uh, anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, trade sanctions. Now it's just under the umbrella of compliance. Well, and as I just add one more layer in there, as I recall, a lot of the focus on anti-money laundering was not uh, purely criminal related, but but also ramped up as a result of 9-11. Yes. There, there was a, a, a very real of evidence of money moving through financial institutions that funded that effort. And um, <clears throat> therefore, the regulators came in with a pretty heavy hand, as they should have, I think, and set up parameters for know your customer and a lot of those other kinds of buzzwords that have permeated the banking world. At, uh, I met with a banker in Corpus, excuse me, in Kerrville last week and sort of told him what I did. And when I said compliance, almost you could almost see the eyes roll inside his head. He goes, yeah, I know about compliance. <laughs> and even in, you know, in a regional bank in Kerrville, it was, you know, front of mind for what he has to do uh, in terms of the reporting of the bank. And as you said, it's not simply uh, not even terrorism and, and money laundering, but, you know, $5,000 is now above that is a suspicious activity report has to be filed, whether it's suspicious or not. That's just a, amount the government set that they won't notice about. So it's as ubiquitous a requirement as there can be. Yeah. Well, and, and and I do not want to politicize our discussion here at all, but, you know, some have gone so far as to challenge the the so-called overreach of government, getting us to set some of these standards. Like you say, even the uh, uh, suspicious activity reports banks have to file. It used to be 10,000, now it's down to five. And, uh, you know, some folks who have a good sized business, they might have a reason to want five or ten thousand in cash to do something, and yet now that's that's deemed potentially suspicious. So it's a it's a challenge. And for those of you that are running businesses out there, if your bankers ask you to fill out some extra paperwork when you've asked for that cash withdrawal, that's what it's all about. Absolutely.
<laughs> so, Tom, and, and as you continue your consulting and advisory work, can you share some of the nature of the projects that you're working on? I you know, don't need to name names, but can you just share some of the examples? Sure. So um, most compliance revolves around something along the lines of know your customer, know your uh, client, know your vendor, know the people you're doing business with. So that the general requirement around that is background due diligence. And so uh, there, I do a lot of projects around that, helping companies set up programs. When I went out on my own in 2010 as a lawyer, I decided I really enjoyed building out compliance programs. So I wanted to be the nuts and bolts guy. I didn't want to do investigations. and I'm not an ex- prosecutor. So I didn't think I should sit on the other side of a table from a prosecutor in a some type of enforcement action. But I really enjoyed building out compliance programs because I see those as business processes. So I try to help companies see that compliance is a business process. And at, if you create a good business process, you can actually make your company more efficient and hopefully at the end of the day, more profitable. So um, who are you doing business with? How are you doing business? Where are you doing business? I help companies build out uh, programs around that, training and investigation uh, in the life cycle of a third-party risk management. I mentioned the due diligence, but that's just one part. You have to have a contract in place, but then you have to manage that relationship afterwards, um, whether that's through audit or other monitoring to make sure your third parties are not violating any of your policies, training and communication, um, uh, a kind of a hot topic right now from the regulators is clawbacks from executives who either violated compliance rules and regulations or sort of buried their head in the sand and should have known. So uh, we're trying to determine, can you actually claw back someone's bonus or other discretionary compensation? You cannot claw back salary. Um, but if someone got a stock option or a bonus or something and you claw that back, um, and then um, leadership, including um, tone at the top, getting senior management buy-in, and above that is the role of the board of directors in compliance. And here we've had some um, very firm guidance from uh, the Delaware courts. Most U.S. companies are domiciled or, or headquartered, not headquartered, but formed in Delaware. So Delaware corporate law governs. And the Delaware courts, starting with their trial court, all the way to their Supreme Court, have created obligations for boards of directors for compliance. So I help boards understand their role in a best practices compliance program. And really starting with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and now whatever the state of our relationships with China is, try to convince boards that Yes, it's compliance, but it's also risk risk management. Absolutely, yeah. The um, I, I know I can speak to that a little bit on on from my consulting days. I I had uh, more than several opportunities to work with a um, uh, a risk management framework and model that. Uh, the whole compliance and regulatory uh, consistency was was one element. It, in this particular model, it was one of eight 
potential areas of risk management that needed to be addressed. And the model we used was to um, go in and work with a company and evaluate the maturity of their risk management effort in each of those eight areas. So, and then a very well-developed level of maturity meant that you had connection with your board. There were designated board members that had oversight on certain elements. And there, you know, there were a lot of layers to the whole um, program. So um, very interesting. You know, in, in something you said there about systematizing this ability for a company to comply, I uh, a thought came through my mind. There was a there was a legal practice I was taught uh, as in my days as a banker, and that was that if your company gets challenged on a transaction, if you can demonstrate that you have a standard practice of dealing with that transaction in a certain way, that help strengthen your defense of whatever may have happened, obviously, unless that practice was bad <laughs> to start with. But, and, and if, for instance, I'm thinking of an element like we only keep paper copies a certain amount of time and otherwise everything is digitized. And that digital record is our source of truth for our company. And so, demonstrating that to a court of law, you, you, you don't necessarily have to show up with the paper and the original document, but you have to demonstrate that that is a standard practice, that that's how you do things. So I talk a lot, as you might guess, about compliance, and I'm all, every speech I give, I say the following. The three most important things in any best practice compliance program are the following, document, document, document. Whatever you do, document it. Because if you have if you have a great process and program, but you haven't documented it and you haven't documented the transaction, in regulators' eyes, it never happened. Yep. And we have a couple of, of pretty stark examples of FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, enforcement actions, where the companies did have a robust program in place, but they didn't have the documentation to show they followed it. So uh, every transaction uh, can be uh, defended if you have a business justification for doing it, whether it's with a, a business venture partner, whether a commission sales agent, or just a sale. And if you have a business rationale or business justification, did you, whatever your process is, as you said, did you follow that process? And can you document that? And if you can show that, you will almost always be able to satisfy a regulator whether it's background due diligence, whether it's a sale, whether it's a transaction, whether it's a something. Yeah. So I think, uh, again, the takeaway for business owners out there that might be listening to this, it is that establishment of the process. And as Tom has added, documenting that process. And, and I think I would go so far to add that includes the training of your personnel to know where that documentation is about the process and how to follow it and what the requirements are. And then ultimately the record keeping on that transaction or that event that happened. And all of those things are necessary. And if you keep doing what I'll call one-off transactions, you are digging a giant hole. <laughs> Uh, you're you're digging yourself a giant hole, but the other thing is 
And I ask people to think about, particularly uh, young entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who may be solo or small companies. Yes, you can do one-off transactions, but what happens if, like happened to me, uh, you get a call from every product provider in your space? How can you scale up? And if you don't have the processes in place, you can create create them, but you're then you're creating 40,000 feet in the air, going 8,000 miles an hour or 4,000 miles an hour in a jet. And uh, could I have done that in my podcast uh, entrepreneurship? I don't know, but I don't have to answer that question because I had the processes in place right. and I could immediately scale up. So that's one of the messages I try to communicate from my experience that no matter how small you are, put those processes in place. And whether that's uh, a financial process, um, because you may become a co public company very, very quickly, or someone may uh, come along and say, we like you, we wanna buy you. Let's see your processes and your documentation. Well, if you can show that, you have created a market differentiator for your business. Right. Well, and that ability to demonstrate that also adds to the ultimate value of your company that you've built if if those bigger players come knocking, whether it's venture capital or other other businesses wanting to buy you. The more that you've already done that work and got all that in place, the um, the the ultimate value of your exit increases sometimes substantially because a potential suitor may like your business idea. They may like the the niche that you've created in the marketplace, but if they come lift the covers and they realize it's all a wing and a prayer and there's not much of a process. And if you go away, they have nothing. Well, guess what? Your valuation just went through the floor. Right. And uh, that is a sometimes hard lesson that uh, entrepreneurs struggle with from time to time. They know they want to sell. They know they want to have a, a lucrative exit of some sort, but they haven't done this preparatory work. They haven't put the systems in place. They haven't done the training. They don't have the documentation. And to me, there's a simple test. If you're a business owner out there, can you walk away from your business for a month and not lose any money? That's a great test. And if, if the answer to that is no, <laughs> you either, and there's nothing wrong, by the way, with having a sole proprietorship and you choose to shut it down for a month. And if you can do that and pick back up after that month, that's your choice. But if you really are striving to build a business that has scalable, saleable value, you've got to pass that test. And plain and simple, I, I don't, I've had a few folks try to argue with me on that point, but it's like, isn't that the point you want, you're wanting to exit as in get your money and go do something else? Well, if you can't temporarily walk away, you certainly cannot permanently walk away. Right. Yeah. Well, Tom, for, for many of these issues that you have your expertise doing and helping people, what, what are the various stages that a, a young up and coming company starts to feel the need for, for this kind of expertise? 
Well, uh, let me go back to Sarbanes-Oxley and the financial controls. And uh, I think the earlier you can put SOX financial controls in place, the better off your corporation is going to be. Number one, the rigor that's required. Two, obviously, the policies and procedures that we've talked about and uh, how everyone kind of knows the rules in the organization. But three, I think it's a true market differentiator. And it demonstrates you as a serious player in whatever your space is. So I tell people, particularly around financial controls and compliance controls, are really just a subset of financial controls. So once you have SOX 404 controls in place, you have about 98% of the compliance controls you need. And um, you bring in somebody like me to fill in the last 2 to 5%. It's not hard. It's not expensive. And it's not a long process, generally. Uh, so get your financial controls in place uh, because that really demonstrates to the world you are you are a serious business and you are a serious business opportunity if you want to cash out at some point. Yeah. And I might add that um, both in terms of contract due diligence and ultimately, I know there are those out there that maybe have a dream and desire to be able to land government contracts. Well, if you want to enter the government contract game, uh, it starts with a registration on the SAM.gov database. And uh, I think the terminology for that's changed a little bit. But in qualifying your business for that, there are pages and pages and litanies of reference points on compliance issues that have to be attested to and documented. So... You know, that is kind of the point of entry for that game if if that's, you know, where you're going. And if you if you check the box, yes, I attest to this, and then they subsequently discover, no, you don't have that in place, obviously you're disqualified, but it can lead to other more serious penalties. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, so it gets to be a, a very delicate uh, Um, very delicate thing. But uh, so so back to your statement on the financial controls, uh, I I tend to think about, and I talk to business owners about this, that there are clearly stages in the life of a company. So you're an entrepreneur, you get this great idea, you go through the startup phase, and then you get a little traction, you, you go into a bit of an expansion phase, you got more opportunity, you you grow the company a bit and the success of that gets you some real traction that can propel you into that what some call a takeoff phase and that's where the the jet climbs up to the 10,000 feet and is flying at whatever speed and that is often too late at time to start developing these things. It, it, not to say it can't be done, but it, it sure becomes more difficult when that's going on. And then ultimately, there's a potential kind of enterprise phase. And that's typically where I see the, the more formalization of board structures and a lot more documentation on policy procedures, et cetera, and and definitely a bigger expansion of the leadership team of the company. It's not just the founder anymore. There's usually a, you know, designation of some roles, possibly even CEO or COO added to the leadership suite. But, uh, um, you know, and that's, I guess where I'm going, Tom, is the, is the question. So, 
if I'm an entrepreneur and I built my little company up and I'm, I'm running it, I don't know, let's pick a number, let's say $5 million annual, do I really need to worry about much of this stuff? Uh, I would be scared to death if I made $5 million and I didn't have controls in place. Uh, because uh, one, uh, I think you need to have those controls in place for your government reporting, i.e. taxes, and any state reporting you may have to do. So I think, uh, and the uh, example of uh, FTX and Sam Bankman Freed uh, is there for everyone. What happens if you hit the biggest home run in the history of the world ever? And you don't have those controls in place. And that's what he did. And he had no controls in place. He had no financial accounting in place. It was the, uh, the worst disaster ever, according to the bankruptcy trustee. And that's the guy that did Enron. So um, uh, I think that's a great example. But at $5 million, uh, it just demonstrates the seriousness of what you do and the efficiencies of what you can bring as a business if you have those controls in place. And it, it sets the culture, it sets the tone for the organization. And if you want to grow your organization, uh, whether dramatically or steady, you know, slow, steady growth, it gives you the foundation to do so. Right, right. Well, I, I agree totally. And, and for me, you know, putting my old banker hat on, when I look at a business that doesn't have some of those controls, I, I go so far as to tell clients, you may not even be bankable if you can't demonstrate those controls. Forget compliance, forget regulation, you know, forget all those things. Your your deal may not be bankable. You you may want to go get a working capital line of credit. And if you can't demonstrate some of those controls to your banker, they're not going to take you in because they have standards they have to follow. And Exactly. And what I tell uh, people, not just entrepreneurs, but all the way up the organization, you may not be able to access the cash in your organization if you don't have those financial controls in place. And as you get larger, you may not be able to access your um, uh, business partners or uh, other opportunities if you don't have compliance controls in place. And most of we just moved out to the Hill Country a couple of years ago, and I was in Houston for most of my professional career. And in the energy space, if you didn't have a compliance program in place, you were not going to do business in the energy industry because every company required that of a business partner, of a customer, of a vendor, of a joint venture partner right. in, a, in a position that was auditable or documented. Right, right. Yeah, that whole vendor management spectrum for the, those really large and, and obviously mostly publicly traded companies uh, th that didn't become a requirement. That was on that was a, a subject of their audits, and the whole vendor management space blew up. And I'm going to say in the late, actually late '80s, I think early '90s, as I recall it. And if you were an entrepreneur, which I was, I opened a, a shop in uh, the late 90s and um, trying to prove myself compliant to, to win even some of those contracts. It wasn't a government deal, but it was uh, it was working with large publicly traded companies. 
there were there were times I couldn't pass some of the early qualification hurdles to to get in as an approved vendor for them. And and again, part of it actually, as I recall, did come back to being able to evidence some financial control and some other things that at the time I personally didn't really want to disclose to anybody and and then uh you know so i had to pay the price by not getting the contract to to do that so it's it's a slippery slope for the entrepreneur for sure but i i guess uh what's the phrase uh come early and go often or something like that <laughs> if when it comes to these uh compliance issues i think that's the that's the version of the bottom line that i'm getting from you tom it just it makes your company not simply more marketable, but but stronger. And that's why I started off saying that effective compliance equates to more efficient business processes, which creates a greater ROI. So I see a direct causal relationship between effective compliance and greater profitability. Yeah, fabulous. Well, I think this has been great, Tom. Tell everybody the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in knowing more. Sure. So you can uh, check out my profile on LinkedIn. You want a, more information on the podcast realm, I have the Compliance Podcast Network, which is www.compliancepodcastnetwork.net. I'm happy to uh, visit with anyone. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, or you can give me a shout the old-fashioned way on the phone at 832-744-0264. Well, that's great, Tom. And uh, again, one last time, thank you so much for sitting in. And as always, folks, we'll have that information that Tom just shared in the show notes. So please do uh, take a look if, if you are interested and take a listen on his show and his network. Uh, really good help. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking uh, for a lot of my entrepreneur clients, they're probably thinking, oh, great. Thank you, Doug. Now I got one more thing I've got to go do. <laughs> But uh, this is a critical one and, and not to be taken lightly, and it, it should become part of a, a much bigger strategic plan that you've got to address these issues, put, put the right procedures and documentation in place, and above all, then follow what you write when you develop it and know that that's part of the test as well. So, um, and Doug, I wanted to thank you because I, I really don't get to talk to entrepreneurs enough about these basic needs. I talk to a lot of corporations, you know, senior execs, boards of directors, but I really want entrepreneurs to understand it will make your company run better and it will make it more marketable. Right, right. I think that's a great summation here. And um, you would have been a good attorney to have on the team back in the day. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Um, I, I laugh sometimes. I, I, I tell my wife I have been accused of being an attorney more often than not. I've been in a lot of discussions and been around the big conference table and going toe-to-toe -to -toe with attorneys. And I've even had guys take me off in the hallway and go, where'd you go to law school? I go, it's hard knocks, buddy. I, that's uh, no, Nothing I said is legally binding. And I, I want to make that clear on this show too. But uh, unlike Tom, I am not a licensed attorney. And please do not take anything I say as legal advice. But uh, uh, I know enough to say that. So how about that? Sounds good.
<laughs> All right, folks. Well, we're going to wrap this up. I do want to remind everybody we've got a video version of this over on uh, YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there. We've got a lot of goodies for you, a lot of special treats, and uh, the whole archive of all of our shows. We're coming up on number 200 pretty quickly here. So looking forward to uh, having you join us over there. For now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and tell you to have a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.